Welcome to The Mind Does. The six questions where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demond, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this year's podcast. Thank you once again for joining us, whether it's your first time or this time for the six questions. And if you like the show, tell the world. Jump on your podcast app and leave a five-star review and tell your friends. That's the best way to help us grow the show and more can join the conversation. My guest was an extra in the original Gone in 60 Seconds, was a chaperone for Brad Pitt, and said no thank you to Renee Zellweger? Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the clearly charmed host of the 80s movie podcast, Edward Haven! <laughs> How are you today? I am doing fantastic. Uh, it's been it's been a, a very charming life indeed, and uh, I'm just very blessed that uh, I, I've had lots of good fortune in my life, and uh, hopefully, uh, we have a good talk, and some people might be inspired to uh, to do things that they would normally not do because of what we're talking about today. Hopefully, yeah. Let's help. Uh... Let's have more people live their best lives. I'm in for it. Yes. Excellent. Now we got to give to give the context about the no thank you to Renee Zellweger. For a good portion of my life, I was, I'm 55, and uh, for 26 years, I was a movie theater manager. And in the early 90s, I was managing a theater here in Los Angeles in Santa Monica, and one of my employees wanted to be a filmmaker. Do you know the Landmark Theater chains at all? Yes, yes. Know. Okay, so I was working for Landmark Theaters, and one of the things I did at my theater, because uh, I wanted to be a filmmaker myself, so what I did is that I wanted to be trying to create a community of people who wanted to be in the industry because I felt that those were the type of people who'd be best working at a movie theater that specialized in art house films. And it worked very well. And in fact, uh, one of the people who uh, worked with me uh, was Effie Brown. Uh, I don't know if you know Project Greenlight at all, uh, but she, um, she was a producer. After she worked for me, she went to work for Tim Burton Productions as his president. And now she's a, a big time producer. And she was actually on Project Greenlight with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as one of the mentors. She's pretty big in town. But uh, there's this young man named Cardi Talkington who uh, came to me one day and said, um, I need to quit because my screenplay for Love and the 45 was acquired and they're gonna let me direct. And I thought that was pretty darn cool. So Cardi's from Texas, he goes back to Texas, he goes to the make the movie. He had originally written a screenplay for his girlfriend, Lois Lane's sister on the adventures of Superman and Lois back in the 90s but the studio didn't want her. Um, Elizabeth was a very lovely person, but for some reason they didn't like her. The, the character of Starlene is from Texas, and so Cardi's from Texas, and so he thought he'd find an actress in Texas. And he did, he found this young lady who uh, only had made uh, a couple of very small films, like uh, she was an extra in Dazed and Confused. And this would have been her first major uh, film role. So she got cast, they made the movie in Texas. When they were done, they came back to Los Angeles for post-production and Renee decided to move to Los Angeles uh, to further her acting career. Cardi, knowing that I'm a Los Angeles native, called me up one day and said, um, so Renee has moved out to Los Angeles. I'd never met her at this point. Uh, moved out to Los Angeles, you know Los Angeles. Maybe you can take her out and show her Los Angeles, because she's brand new. She doesn't know anybody. She doesn't know much about the town. And I told Cardi that I really wasn't interested. Part of it was because I was actually already in a relationship with uh, somebody who was in the industry, and it wasn't a very good relationship. And I didn't want to fall in that trap. And so I just said no. And then within two years, she was in uh, Jerry Maguire. And within six years, she was an Oscar-winning actress for Cold Mountain, and now she's won a second Oscar. I'm not saying that we would have hit it off or anything. Uh, I am not pretending. I've still never met her, to be really? completely honest. Uh, but 
I had the opportunity to take, literally be the first person to take her out into Los Angeles to discover the town. And I said, no. Oh, well. <laughs> but, but to be fair, my life has been pretty fantastic regardless. And all of the choices that we make, whether they're good, they're bad, whatever, leads us to where we are now and the person who we have become. And I am extremely happy with the person I am now, the person I've become, my life partner who I've been married to for more than 20 years. My life is pretty fantastic. So I have no regrets about saying no to Renee, taking out Renee Zellweger. Man, that's, that's a little, that's, that, honestly, that's some bragging points, right? It's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, is the story 100% true? Well, you know, <laughs> but it, it's enough true. I, there's things that maybe, you know, I've, I've exaggerated over the years where now my mind has made it the truth because, you know, she can't, she can't deny it or, or confirm it because I've never met her. And, uh, and I don't know if Cardi would ever be listening. Uh, if you are Cardi, you can tell me in private if uh, I messed something up, but that's how I remember it. That's awesome. <laughs> Edward, uh, where would you like to be found on the internet? The website is the 80s movie podcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at the 80s movie pod. I do have Instagram and Facebook and all that other stuff, but pretty much the, my concentration of efforts is on those two uh, main places. So the website or, or Twitter. Edward Havens, are you ready to answer the six questions? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. Question number one. When did you know you wanted to get into podcasting? Uh, like many people, I actually never listened to a single podcast until a few years ago. It just wasn't something that was in my sphere of, of reference. Being a movie theater manager at the time, uh, 2016, 2017, my wife and I were living in Berkeley. She was going to uh, law school at Berkeley. And my commute was about half an hour from home to work, work to home. And I was just listening to the radio. In the Bay Area, there was a radio station that specialized in 80s music. And Martha Quinn, one of the original MTV DJs, was one of the DJs. So I would just listen to my 80s music as I was driving. It was no big deal. She graduated, we moved back to Los Angeles. And I kind of reconnected with some of my friends from before. And one of them was telling me about this podcast. It was asking me a question. It was like, hey, you love 80s movies. Have you heard this podcast called 80s All Over? And I said, no, I don't listen to podcasts. And they said, well, you know, two of your friends are actually hosting it, Scott and uh, Drew, uh, film critics that um, when I ran my own website, filmdrip.com for many years, I was a film critic as well as a movie theater manager. And so I gave it a listen. And when you're driving in Los Angeles, there's times where you're stuck in traffic for an hour and a half or more. In fact, my wife right now, as we're talking, she's on her way from Santa Monica to Long Beach, and it's going to be an hour and a half commute. She doesn't listen to podcasts at all. So I just started listening to their podcast as I was driving because their podcast was about an hour and 15 minutes or so. And that was the average time of my commute. And there were about 70 or 80 episodes that they had produced before I even started listening. So I would just start at number one and work my way forward. And I kind of really got into it. And then there was another podcast that's called You Must Remember This that's hosted by another film critic named Karina Longworth, which is, goes into the secret history of Hollywood for the entire history of movies. Right now, she's in the middle of uh, a series that she first talked about the erotic 80s last year, and now she's into the erotic 90s because you know sex and cinema has kind of disappeared over the last 20 years. And so being a movie guy, I kind of got more into the movie podcasts. And then in early 2019, I'm listening to 80s all over as I'm driving home one day. And Drew and Scott say, this is unfortunately going to be our last episode. They had a, they were going to talk about every major movie that was made over the course of the, the entire decade of the 80s, one month at a time. So there would have been like 140 episodes if they'd done the whole thing, or 130 episodes. So 12 months plus a wrap up. So 130 episodes over the course of 10 years, doing it every two weeks would have been about a five year project. But they 
didn't even get halfway through the project before whatever reasons they didn't uh, they weren't able to continue and i got home that day and i started thinking if i was ever going to do a podcast i would want to do a podcast like that but not exactly like that i would do my own way being somebody who had worked at movie theaters from 1986 to 2020 I knew a lot about movies, especially the littler movies from the smaller uh, distributors that have kind of been forgotten over the years. Because if you listen to um, any movie podcast, especially 80s movie podcasts, they talk about the same 50 to 100 movies. And in the 80s, with the explosion of home video and cable, there were almost 10,000 movies that were made and distributed over the course of that 10 years. So I kind of spend time talking about the other 9,900 movies that very rarely get discussed. And with me, I have a personal history by playing them or whatever reason um, for most of them. So each week I kind of just pick a topic. For example, the episode that I just posted today is about a movie from 1983 called Valley Girl. And the reason why I was doing it is because it's celebrating its 40th anniversary this Saturday and tonight, the director, Martha Coolidge, is actually going to be in attendance at a 40th anniversary screening of it at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood. So I thought that would be a nice tie-in. And so I spent, I spent several days doing the research. Uh, and then I was up till 2 in the morning writing it. And then after I got my wife off to work, I recorded it and posted it, had it online by 10 a.m. And so now I got to just figure out what I'm going to do for next week. So you don't plan these that far in advance? Uh, sometimes I do. And last year I did an episode about a movie theater uh, here in Los Angeles called the Beverly Center Cinemas. Uh, that was the first multiplex in America. It was the first theater in, in America that had a double digit number of screens. You know, now we have theaters that have up to 30 screens. But in 1982, the Beverly Center was the first theater to have more than 10 screens or more than nine screens. And the reason why I did it specifically at the Beverly Center was because I was the I was a manager there in the 90s, and I was the manager who closed it in 2010. And it, the theater is very historic. It's been, it appeared in lots of movies. There were a lot of um, premieres there. There was a lot of test screenings there that changed the course of how different movies were made. The theater has a lot of history, and but that history kind of got lost in the wayside. So in about 2020, even though that I knew the 40th anniversary of the opening of the theater wasn't until July of 2022. I started planning that episode two years in advance, but I have no idea what I'm going to talk about next week now that I'm done with this week. And actually, that's not 100% true. I, I did figure out while I was writing this episode that I'm going to do uh, the director Martha Coolidge's next movie, uh, Joy of Sex, for next week. And then after that, I'll do her next movie, Real Genius with Val Kilmer. So I actually already have the next two planned out per se, but I didn't even really think about it until the way that I format my podcast is I talk about the history of the filmmakers or the property before it got to production. Then I talk about the production and talk about the release. And then I kind of do a summary of where their careers ended up after that. And doing all the research about Martha Coolidge's career after Valley Girl, was just like there's a lot of interesting stories where I can't just do a quick summary so I kind of already mapped out the next two while I was finishing writing this one but I usually have post-its lined up on, on the bottom of my screen and right now I have no post-its because sometimes I just fly by the seat of my pants see what uh, excites me that week and you never know what's going to happen 10,000 movies in the 80s is that yeah. is that the is that uh, did it just go up from there or is that like the peak Six on one hand, half a dozen on the other, as, as the industry has changed. Because in the 70s, you really only had movie theaters. You didn't have VHS. You didn't have cable or you very limited cable. Showtime originally started in the mid-70s as a, as a channel called Cable One, uh, Channel One. And it literally only showed two movies a night. It showed one movie at 6 o'clock. It showed a second movie at 8 o'clock. And then it would repeat the first movie at 10 o'clock. It didn't show 24 seven and so there weren't a lot of movies on on cable cable didn't really come into its its 
heyday until the early 80s. VHS didn't really become into its heyday until the early 80s. So as there were more ways for movies to get out, their movies, more movies got made. Like now when you're watching TV, there's dozens of streaming channels and there's hundreds of, of other channels and you've got to fill that air with something. Some of them are repeats of old shows. Some of them are, are new shows that are created specifically, you know, about pets. And so you just got to fill that pipeline. So now that there was a cable channel, there were more cable channels. Disney started making Disney Channel movies and HBO started making movies for HBO and Showtime started making movies for Showtime. Cinemax was picking up a lot of, you know, adult themed movies. And then uh, on home video, you, you know, with home video, you now had the opportunity to make low budget movies that were kind of copycats of bigger budget movies where home video stores would be would buy them because if you can't rent the Terminator, you might rent the Exterminator. Sounds similar. Doesn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, but if you can't watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, you just get something because you're already at the video store. As more video stores opened and as more cable channels started making more original movies, by the time you got to the late 80s, there were already like seven or 800 movies opening in theaters each year anyway. But now that the pipeline was growing by the end of the decade, it was 12, 1300. So it kind of balances out about a thousand per year over the course of the entire decade. And there's lots of movies that you probably have never heard of. There's, there's been movies where I haven't even heard of them as I'm doing my research for my episode for, for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm planning on doing an episode of a uh, movie. You know, you remember Pat Morita from Karate Kid? Yes. Mr. Miyagi? Mm-hmm. He made a movie in 1987 in Detroit. He plays a cop from Japan who comes to Detroit to solve a murder. And it was made around the same time as RoboCop was being made also in Detroit. But this was a comedy. And it would have been the first movie to also star Jay Leno, who's not primarily known as an actor. The movie is called Collision Course. And the company that made it, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, literally went bankrupt on the last day of shooting. So the movie sat in limbo for two years. The director edited the movie. They did the score and everything else because the money was there already. The money was budgeted. The money was in the bank, per se. So they were able to complete the film. But because the bankruptcy proceedings sometimes take a very long time, it took two years for some other company, I don't remember the company at the moment, to acquire it. And then they just sent it out straight to video, even though it was made for theaters. By the time that it finally got to that point, the company that bought it got it for a song out of bankruptcy and they just, they didn't, they weren't a a theatrical distribution company. They were a home entertainment distribution company. So they just sent out the video. So there's this movie with Jay Leno, one of the most famous comedians in America over the last 35 years that most people have never even heard of. And the reason I mention this is because uh, he does a show right now called You Bet Your Life. And I've actually tried out for it and I hopefully will be on it this summer. But as I was talking to one of his producers, his producer didn't even know anything about this movie. And this guy's been your boss for how many years now? So it's just one of those movies that just kind of gets lost. It's not a great movie, but it's not a bad movie. But it got lost in the shuffle of all these other things that are happening. And now even the biggest Jay Leno fans don't know that this movie, that's literally the only movie that ever starred Jay Leno, even exists. Well, they know now. (laughs) So, yeah. So, but but that's one of the things I love about doing it is that for people who are my age, you know, I'm either reminding you of movies that you used to love that you haven't seen in decades, or I'm introducing you to a movie that you've never heard of that hopefully you might find is interesting and you'll go seek it out. That's eventually what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to educate and entertain and hopefully give people the opportunity to discover something that they might love that they didn't even know existed. Question number two. What do you wish you had known when you started out? I don't think there's anything that I wish I had known when I started out. I just wish I had more of the tools that I needed 
to make a better podcast. I listened to some of those early episodes from time to time, and they sometimes make me cringe at the lack of quality. Over the course of four years, I've been doing this since 2019, over the course of four years, technology has very much improved now where microphones have gotten a lot better. You have uh, DAWs that have, excuse me, gotten a lot better. I'm in a room that has absolutely no treating on the wall whatsoever. And the sound is pretty fantastic because I've spent that time upgrading my equipment when I can and trying to find the ways where I can create a quality podcast without having to spend a whole bunch of money to treat a room that I might not be able to even fully cover all of the bases, uh, for lack of a better word. So that's the one thing I wish. I wish I just had the better tools at the time I just started. But it was a very impetuous start anyway. It was just like, I literally you know, decided on a Tuesday that I was going to do this. And then by next Tuesday, I was already recording my first episode. Wow. Yeah. Um, I do not waste time. <laughs> What's the most interesting fact that you discovered in your research since you've uh, started podcasting? Oh my gosh, that's just that's just so hard to answer because there's so many things. And what I do is that I commit it to paper instead of editing and in post, I kind of edit in the writing stage. So by the time that I record, I'm recording from a script that, that I've worked on the timing and the cadence. I know how I speak. So usually I can get through a 45 minute recording in three takes because I very rarely make mistakes when I'm recording. But once it's on the paper, it's kind of out of my head because I've got so many things in my head going on. But there's one that was interesting to me was um, there's a filmmaker in South Carolina, if I'm recalling correctly, his name is Earl Ownsby. And he's a regional filmmaker. Most of his movies are completely unknown outside of the South for people who were in the 80s. And a lot of them were actually made in 3D. But he was successful because he was able to keep his costs low. He distributed the movies himself. And he was able to buy in the mid 80s an abandoned nuclear power plant very cheaply which he then rented to James Cameron so that James Cameron could make his movie The Abyss in a humongous underwater tank because the movie takes place in a, under underwater for the vast majority of the movie. So what they did is they, they took this, uh, it was uncompleted. There was never any nuclear you know, reactor or anything in it, but it was abandoned before it was completed building. And so what they did is they literally filled it up with water built or they built the set for the the movie filled it up with water so they could actually film underwater for the vast majority of the movie which if you tried to do it in in a hollywood studio you couldn't do it because there is no tank in at any hollywood studio that is that large so it was just by complete circumstance that he was originally planning to shoot the movie in like barbados or uh, malta but just by sheer luck was able to find a place in America where he could have complete control over the environment as best as possible, uh, barring any you know, force majeure. Sometimes you just hear about these movies that just have this incredible luck that then is followed by a whole string of bad luck because as lucky as the production got by getting this tank, so many things went wrong afterwards that eventually Earl Onsby had to sue James Cameron because uh, he felt that uh, Cameron and his crew damaged a lot of the reactor where they were filming, that he would not be able to use it again for something else unless there was significant repairs. So, but because there was a lot of bad weather and a lot of bad luck with it. But if you've ever seen The Abyss, it's truly astonishing. The, if you see Avatar, especially the one that just came out a few months ago, and you watch Abyss, you can see the parallels of the storyline and the way that he made them, where he was just, he was doing the things he was doing in the 80s with with Avatar 30 years later. It's really fascinating at times if you're familiar with his, uh, with his filmography. 
Question number three. What's your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? I live in Long Beach, California, and there's a place here called Steelcraft. It's a bunch of old shipping containers that have been converted into standalone eateries. And one of them is called Waffle Love. And it's chicken and waffles. They do a lot of other stuff. They do a lot. Of, they, there's a lot of uh, fruity. There's ones with uh, strawberries and, and whipped cream. And there's bananas and Nutella and stuff. But my go-to is the chicken and waffles. I love my chicken and waffles. I'm a California boy. I'm Los Angeles born and bred. But we used to have it. There's still, it's still around. There's a place called Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. The Roscoe's that I used to go to in Hollywood, when I lived up in Hollywood, I, I loved it very much. Roscoe's is 20 miles away, but Steelcraft Waffle Love is two miles away. And they have great chicken and the waffles are amazing. And they have a sriracha sauce for the waffles that is just to die for. If I don't get chicken and waffles at least once a week, something is severely wrong. <laughs> and I've become friends with the manager, DeAndre. I take my dog with me. I have a golden retriever and I take River with me every week. And just the affection she has for DeAndre and DeAndre has for River is just amazing. But that's how often I go is that that my dog has become friends with the manager, <laughs> has become friends with my dog. They think the last time more than a week went by is when my wife and I went to Thailand for Christmas and New Year's. So we were out of the country for three weeks and couldn't go every week. It takes me being 12 hours around the other side of the planet in order to uh, not get my chicken and waffles. That sounds like a good chicken and waffles. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It is so good. Question number four. What are you curious about? I am curious about a great many things. There's a quote on Ted Lasso from Walt Whitman, and it's just, don't be judgmental, be curious. And it took me many years to get there. When I was younger, when I was a young man, I was a movie theater manager. I was hired at a movie theater when I was 18. And within a month, I became a manager because I don't fool around. I don't joke around when it comes to something that I'm serious about. But I was so cocksure because I had gotten promoted that quickly that when I was approaching my 21st birthday, at least back then, you couldn't become a general manager of a theater until you were 21 because you couldn't be bonded by an insurance company. You could become an assistant manager, but you couldn't become a general manager until you were 21. So I was getting close to my 21st birthday. And the district manager for the area called me up one day and said, I want you to be in my office tomorrow at 11 a.m. And so I go to Mr. P's office at his theater and it's his day off, but he's still there. And he's dressed in a free Tibet t-shirt. And this is like 1988. And, and he's like, okay, you're about to turn 21. You are clearly a very gifted person at what we do. And you're very clearly ready to become a general manager as soon as you turn 21. But Ed, you need to chill the F out. And even then, I heard him. But I didn't listen so much. But I did become a general manager. And I was a very good general manager. And I loved what I did. But it took me many years to, to literally finally hear what Mr. Pavlovich said, to chill the F out. And now I'm so curious about so many things in the world. Like every time my wife and I go on vacation somewhere in the world, we go somewhere different because we want to learn about different cultures. We want to immerse ourselves in, in what that culture is like. So we spent, uh, after she graduated from law school, we spent a month in France. And it was probably a little too long, but it was great. We spent two and a half weeks in Thailand. We spent two and a half weeks in Mexico. We went from Mexico City to Guadalajara to Puerto Vallarta with a stop in tequila itself. So we could go, because I love tequila. So um, we went to see where Jose Cuervo was made and got a whole uh, tour of, of the 
place where they make it and the whole process of making tequila was a lot of fun. I want to learn more about everything. And I know I'll never get there. I'll never know everything about everything. And that's okay. I want to learn as much as possible about everything that I can. It, it doesn't matter. I, there's times where I'll go, I'll go see a French movie in France with English subtitles, just even though I can't understand everything they're saying, just because I want to have that experience of going to see a movie in France, in French, even though I might not understand what they're saying, because I know that the subtitles aren't catching everything that they're saying all the time, especially when they're talking as quick as I'm talking now. But just that experience is the important part. When we went to Thailand, we went to see the new Puss in Boots movie because we were there over Christmas. And the theater that it was playing in, the lights were left up and there was a ball pit in front of the screen and there was a slide going down the side of one of the, the uh, aisles that landed into another ball pit. And you'd think that would be as distracting as heck, but it wasn't because the kids would watch the movie and when they were kind of bored with the movie, they'd just go play in the ball pit, but they kind of understood that you're in a movie theater, so you can't make a whole bunch of noise. But they were having so much fun. And then when they were done, they would come back to their seats and watch the movie some more. But that's something that I guarantee you there's no theater in America that has ball pits and slides in the theater. And that was an awesome experience. And it was something that I'll never, I've never experienced before and I might never experience again. But it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And it was a darn good movie to boot. Question number five. What should I ask you that I didn't know enough to ask? So I probably would have probably would have suggested, well, one of the things I sent you was that I was Brad Pitt's uh, bodyguard. Actually, I, not just chaperone. I was actually Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow's bodyguard one day. So at that same theater the, in Santa Monica, where I could have possibly dated Renee Zellweger, we used to do a lot of events with a group called the Independent Feature Project. They were a group that helped independent filmmakers uh, with support. And now, they you've ever heard of the Spirit Awards that are given out the day before the Oscars? Yes. They're kind of like the... So they're the group that puts out the Spirit Awards. They're not called Film Independent. The person who ran... IFP at the time, called me up at work one day and she asked me if I was working the following day. And I said, no. And she said, are you available to do something? I, I need somebody who has your particular skills, not to sound like Liam Neeson too much, but I'm six foot three. I'm 240 pounds. I'm a big guy. And I have this deep voice, as you can tell. And so what, they, what she was asking me was that uh, she wanted to know if I would be available to kind of be Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow's chaperone slash bodyguard type person to a premiere that was happening uh, the next day at a pretty big theater here in Los Angeles called the Royal Theater. And it was for a film called Living in Oblivion, which featured Steve Buscemi and was Peter Dinklage's first uh, major role. And it's about a filmmaker who's having trouble making an independent movie. And it's very inside baseball for for independent filmmakers. Uh, not a lot of people have heard of it, but it's a very funny movie if you know what it's like to make a movie. And the reason why Brad Pitt was going is because uh, the director, Tom Cello's previous movie called Johnny Suede was Brad Pitt's first movie as a leading actor. Uh, came out the year before, uh, the same year as Thelma and Louise. Uh, I actually think it came out a few weeks before Thelma and Louise, made him a star. And so he was just going to support his friend, the guy who helped him build his career with his first lead role. I get to the place where the limo's going to be. Uh, we go up, we drive up to, to Brad and Gwyneth's who were, um, they had made seven, but seven wasn't out yet. And, but they were living together. They'd been dating since the movie. And, you know, it's not my job really to, to interact with them. Let's just make sure that they get to the theater, make sure nobody bothers them during the movie. Uh, and then get them to the after party, make sure that people don't bother them at the after party, let them have you know a good time, and then make sure they get home safe. That's pretty simple. And again, don't make sure people don't bother them too much, which of course you want a six foot three, 240 pound guy with a deep voice to kind of scare people off. Not a lot of people mess with me. 
So we did all that. The, the movie's really good. We got to the after party, which was held a few blocks down the street. And I just happened to mention to, to Brad Pitt that the young lady I was dating at the time, her dad was the agent for the couple that had written 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys hadn't come out yet. It was still about six months away from being released. But I told him I had gotten to read the script and I thought it was really fascinating and I can't wait to see the final movie. And his face just kind of lit up because you could tell he was excited about this project. There was something about this movie, you know, with Bruce Willis directed by Terry Gilliam. And he eventually got nominated for his first Oscar for uh, his role in it. But as soon as I said, I've read 12 Monkeys, I can't wait to see it. So we ended up spending like an hour drinking tequila and talking about this movie that he made that I had read the script, but obviously hadn't seen any of it. But, you know, we spent like an hour ignoring his girlfriend at the after party, drinking tequila and talking about this movie that wasn't even coming out for another six months. And then, you know, got them home. I've never seen Brad Pitt again. I absolutely have no doubts that he would not remember any of that because it was darn near 30 years ago and he's Brad Pitt. He's had a lot of experiences since then. I have not had as many experiences as Brad Pitt. So he also has a thing where he has trouble recognizing people's faces. Uh, I forget the, the clinical name for it, but he has, and my brother has the same issue sometimes where he can, he, he'll know somebody, but he just doesn't recognize their face. There's a problem with the, with the brain that it doesn't always make the connection. So, you know, I can't go up to Brad Pitt and say, hey, remember that time that you and I hung out 28 years ago? He won't remember it. I guarantee it. I'm not trying to latch onto it, call him my best friend or anything. I severely doubt he would remember me. But I remember a great many things because, again, I'm very curious about life. So I wanted to be a filmmaker at the time. And so being able to talk to an actor like Brad Pitt. And remember, Seven hadn't come out yet. Twelve Monkeys hadn't come out yet. His biggest movie was Legends of the Fall. He wasn't a superstar yet. He was a star in the making, but he wasn't a superstar yet. So by being able to talk to an actor like Brad Pitt for an hour about the process of making one of his best movies ever before it even came out was just something that, again, I've led a very treasured life. I've been able to position myself in a place where I've gotten to meet a lot of people. I've gotten to do a lot of things that most people will never have the opportunity to do. So I might not be a rich person in terms of financial wealth, but I am rich in experiences and rich in knowledge. And that's one of the things I try to bring to my podcast is not, hey, I know more than you, but hey, here's this thing that I do know about that you might be interested in. And let me try to make it interesting to you so that maybe you'll be, you'll, you'll go seek it out. So that's what I try to do with the podcast is use my experiences as a theater manager, as somebody who's worked as a second assistant director in movies, I spent my entire life learning about cinema. So I like to use my knowledge for good. That is an incredible story. As an 80s, uh, as a person who watched a lot of 80s movies, not, not near the uh, volume that you have, I appreciate, your, I appreciate your service, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, well, one of the nice things about working in a movie theater is that one of your duties as a manager is you have to watch the movies before they play for an audience. Back in the 80s and up until about 2012, movies used to come on 2,000-foot reels of 35-millimeter film that you'd have to splice together in order to play the film. And so it was your job to make sure that you did it properly because 999 times out of 1,000, you'll do it right. You'll do everything right, but there's that one time in a thousand where you're going to screw something up. And funnily, funnily enough, it was a Brad Pitt movie that I actually screwed up majorly on. Um, he made a movie back in 1997 called Seven Years in Tibet. Beautiful movie that uh, peripherally is about Tibet and, and Tibetan spiritualism, stuff like that. But uh, real five of this eight real movie I put on upside down and backwards. But if I had not watched it, I wouldn't have been able to fix it before the, the first paying crowds. And it would have been hugely embarrassing because I would have had to give refunds to like seven or eight people who came to that first show. That's why you do it. So I not just have this, this insane knowledge, I've actually watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these films. And not just, you know, the little indie movies, because my theater showed mostly blockbusters. So Crocodile Dundee played at my theater for like nine months straight. We played 
Ferris Bueller's Day Off for four or five months. Uh, the Fly was there for a long time, Alien. So not only did I get to be able to watch these movies sometimes by myself in a theater so I could just really experience the movie, but if a movie's playing for a very long time, you you start to find when your favorite scenes are so you can actually like just pop your head into the theater because you know that oh it's you know 837 that scene where he pulls out the knife and says that's a knife that's a knife you know that scene's coming up and you just pop your head in there watch the watch the film for a moment watch the audience reaction and go back to work really quick so that was one of the great things about working in a theater is that you could just kind of learn about timing and editing and, and holding an extra beat so that if the audience, you get the audience reaction you hope for, it's not going to overstep the next line. Because sometimes that happens. It's, I saw I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, the, the Wayans Brothers movies at a theater that was packed. And the movie is just so damn funny that a good 15% of the lines, the next lines after a specific line were lost because people were still laughing that movie could have been an, an extra 10 minutes longer just so that all the beats were properly inserted so that you could have that time to get that laugh and then recover. So eventually I actually got to play the movie. And so I watched it by myself so that I could, you know, the only person who would be interrupting was me. And it was much funnier the second time around because I actually got to hear everything was happening. And I watched that movie so many times. I probably haven't seen it in 10 or 15 years. I could still do the entire Chris Rock, you know, scene with the, you know, with, with the rib. How many ribs come with that? <laughs> I can do that entire scene from memory because I just, I would go watch that scene every time it came on because it was just so freaking hilarious. What's nice about that is also, you know, is that working in a theater, you get exposed to so many different types of movies that you might not otherwise see because of availability, because of cultural barriers, whatever. The best part about my job, especially in the late 80s, was I got to manage what was called a dollar house. Do you remember dollar houses? Mm, I mean, dollar theaters? Yeah, so basically okay. it's like after a movie played at the big theater, uh, it would move to a second run house where tickets were like a buck, a buck fifty, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I got to manage a dollar house for about two years where the booker on Mondays would tell me, okay, these are the movies you have available to you. And I literally could create my own playlist of movies. And so there was a time where I had Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for like nine months. And every three weeks, I would just pair it with something else two movies for $1.50? Are you freaking kidding me? At a movie theater? That was awesome. We were constantly packed. I was making more money as, from my 2% commission on the snack, snack bar sales sometimes than I was as my, my salary as the manager. Wow. It was awesome. But that's what you do. And so I'd be able to get, and it's like, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to get you suckers. Well, really? You're kidding. Awesome. Give it to me. And then you just find other movies that would pair well. You know, so whether it was uh, the Mighty Quinn with Denzel Washington or whatever, you just you would try to find, you know, those pairings, you know, because, you know, I'm going to get you suckers very much an R-rated movie with the language. And then, you know, you can't put that with Turner and Hooch, the dog movie with Tom Hanks. So you kind of have to find the right pairings. But that was like the best thing I loved about being a theater manager was being able to literally create my own movie playlist for two years. Four screens, eight movies at a time. That was heaven. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, it was. And how old were you again? I got that theater when I turned 21. Okay. So I turned 21 in November of 1988, and then I got promoted in June of 89. So I was still 21, so I got to do that for about two years. And the only reason I stopped doing this because the theater actually was closed. Mm. Uh, the entire shopping center got torn down and rebuilt into something else. So my theater actually closed. If you're a film fanatic, the way that I am a film fanatic, that is that is literally heaven on earth. Being able to just be able to say, I want to put this movie with that movie. I want to put this movie with that movie. I want to put these two together. You know, and or it's just it, it's just magic. And and it was fantastic. And like I said, it's like, you know, my salary was X. And I can't remember how much it was. It was five, six hundred dollars a week. 
but in the in 1989 that was pretty good salary but sometimes two percent snack bar sales I, I would get a commission two percent right so if i sold a popcorn for three dollars i get six cents but my snack bar you know again this is a dollar house in 1989 so concessions were really cheap but that's how much business that this theater did where sometimes my commission for a two-week period would be more than a thousand dollars even if i was only getting two percent because we were just you know because imagine you're a kid you get ten dollars for for your allowance Friday night, you ride your bikes to over to the movie theater. You get to see two movies for a dollar fifty. You still got eight fifty, and you can just pig out on on red vines and popcorn and soda, plunk some quarters into the video games I had in the lobby. You'd still have a few bucks left over afterwards because it was cheap. And it's one of the things that I I really wish existed still. There's a few of them around. You know, it's like that in drive-ins. I love drive-ins and I'm very fortunate where I live that I have a drive-in two miles from my house. And my wife and I go to the drive-in almost every week as well, because we love movies. Uh, but I wish this, these are the things that we've kind of lost over the course of the last 30, 40 years. And that's one of the things that I constantly talk about on the show was just, just how much the movie industry has changed over the last 40 years for better and for worse. You know, now, you have movies like RRR, the, uh, just not won an Oscar for Best Original Song, but it's a three-hour Bollywood movie. And, and even 10 years ago, that movie might have played in 10 theaters in America, it mostly you know theaters that catered to the, the Hindu audience, you know, to, to Indian audiences. And now it's playing in two, three, four hundred theaters because the way that film distribution has changed with digital projection and digital files instead of film where now there's a much bigger world open to film goers and that's fantastic but then you also lose the ability of, of lower income people across the entire spectrum who can't afford to go to the movies not everybody can afford to pay 14 dollars a ticket to see avatar and so they have to wait until it comes out on disney plus or something and you lose that the magic of the theatrical experience and so that's one of the things i try to do is just kind of show how much that love of the theatrical experience can fill your soul with hope and magic and sometimes despair and sometimes grief but it just there's something about going to movie theaters that just makes that movie so much more special because you have to make an effort to go there question number six if you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? The holiday that I would love to see is a national voting day. In November, the first Tuesday in November, when we vote that everybody, as many people as possible, should have the day off from work so that we can participate in our American democracy. Obviously, that only counts for one country, but hopefully as many countries that have democracies as possible would do something similar. For me, I'm, I'm a diehard liberal, but I believe that everybody, no matter what your political preferences are, has the right to vote if you meet the qualifications. 18, an American citizen, or, you know, or a naturalized citizen. And you know, for me as a white male in Los Angeles, it's easy for me to vote. But I read so many stories about how hard it is for so many people around this country and how many people around this world are unable to participate in, the, in democracy, something that is supposed to be a right as an American citizen, as voting, that... I wish that that we could create an, an American national voting day that gives the people the ability to take time off of work because you're not working and go vote because there's so many barriers to voting as it is already where, you know, precincts are being closed down. So where there used to be eight precincts, there's now one. So you have eight times as many people trying to vote in the same place as they did before. Not everybody has access to um, mail-in ballots. That's the one holiday that I would love to see is just a national day for everyone to vote. 
I honestly think that's prop that's probably been the most uh, requested holiday since I started doing this. I've done uh, over eighty interviews, and that's probably that's the most common one. Well, it's just it's it's just common sense. Yeah, I yeah mean, it is. I mean, I mean, we have. I mean, you, you listen. You hear all these every day. There's like, it's it's National Hot Dog Day. It's not you know. There's they they create so many stupid ho- you know fake holidays to promote products. Why wouldn't we not want to promote democracy in literally the country that created this process this way? Yep. Why would we not celebrate that? And it's just one thing that I've never missed an election since I've turned eighteen. Never once. It's. I hate to use the word patriot because it's been so twisted uh, over the last several years, but that's how I feel. I feel that as an American, it is my job as part of my responsibility. It's part of my duty to vote for everything. I vote for school boards, even though I don't have kids going to school. I vote for judges, even though I haven't been in front of a judge ever because I don't break the, I don't break the law. Uh, and I do all of the research I, in California. We, we have propositions uh, and there's so many propositions every year. And my wife and I read about every single one. We read about every single candidate we're voting for. We make informed decisions about the voting process because we care so deeply about the world that exists and, and what we can do in our community and what we can do in our state and what can we can do in our country. And it just, just so bothers me when I hear about what happens in Georgia and in other states where, in Florida, where people are just having their rights taken away simply because the color of their skin or their sexual preference or whatever. And it's like voting is not, shouldn't, you know, we're not in the 1840s where, you know, women couldn't vote and, and black people couldn't vote and only white landowners could vote. You know, if that was still the case today, I wouldn't have been allowed to vote until five years ago. And my wife still wouldn't be allowed to vote. The world has changed. and We cannot regress back to the way it was before. We we need to move forward. And and that's another thing. It's like, you know, don't push back, push forward. Edward, thank you very much. Thank you thank very you much. I appreciate you. it. Well, thank you for having me. Again, thank you once again for joining us, whether it's your first time or this time for the six questions. If you like the show, tell the world. Please jump on your podcast app and leave a five-star review and tell your friends. That's the best way to grow the show and more can join the conversation. And until next time, see it, hear it, speak it, 